0: Welcome to Women in Sports Unfiltered. I am Maka Scott, here with our co-hosts Kyra Joyner and Jakara Ware. And today's episode is titled ABCs, Athletes, Brands and Community. Society is shaping the strategy of athlete and brand activism. Cultural movements are here. And online social communities provide a platform to amplify these pertinent issues. This discussion today will dive into what athletes, brands, and the teams are doing differently or should be doing to transition their message as social movements continue. I'm excited about the guests we have today. We have Nicole Whiteman, the CEO of the Dodgers Foundation, as well as Keith Brooks, Executive Director of Big League Impact.
1: It's been exciting to see organizations and athletes using their platforms now more than ever before. Thanks again for the two of you for joining us today. And it's amazing to have organizations like yours to join us and share more light on what's going on. Nicole Whiteman is the CEO and the rival of the DVAC for the Dodgers Foundation, where she leads the team's official charity and award-winning leader in sports-based youth development. Nicole resides in Los Angeles with her husband and two sons. With a degree in economics from Selman College, Nicole was the first in her family to graduate from college and has a passion for education, equity, and diversity. Prior to the Dodgers Foundation, Nicole was the Western VP of the Jackie Robinson Foundation and also worked in investment management and publishing. As a Black woman in Major League Baseball, Nicole understands the importance of access. She uses her resources to open doors for youth regardless of their roots. The New York native has been recognized throughout the industry for her exceptional contributions. Nicole's leadership and the Dodgers Foundation were named the 2020 ESPN Sports Humanitarian Team of the Year. The proud SB winning organization has so much more on the horizon and we can't wait to hear more from you.
2: Thank you, Jakara. And I have the pleasure of introducing Keith Brooks. Keith Brooks is the executive director of Big League Impact. Keith has nearly 30 years of service to the community in which he lives. Spending the first half of his career in community and program development and the second half of his career in sports-related community outreach and philanthropy. Having a passion for the health and education of youth and families as the driving force behind his efforts that have defined his life's work. After over a decade of work in community service, he has made the transition to the majors. Spending 17 years with the St. Louis Cardinals Foundation Cardinals Care, Before accepting his current role with Big League Impact, the foundation started by Cardinals pitcher Adam Wainwright. Big League Impact is a culmination of a career in service, allowing Keith to work with Major League Baseball club players across the league to meet their goals of both serving the community domestically and abroad. Thank you, Keith, for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So we're going to jump right into it with everything that's going on. We want to ask you guys to try to sum it up in one word. How are you feeling? How are you feeling today? How have you been feeling these last few months? Have you had to condense it into one word? What would that word be? Nicole?
4: I'm going to use the word illuminated.
0: That's a good one. Okay, Mm -hmm. Keith?
3: And my word would be hopeful.
0: Okay, I like that one too. So how are you Uh both managing during this time? You know, what adjustments have you made?
4: Yeah, I'm sure um, Keith would say the same, but it's been a really tricky year for everybody. Clearly uncertain, so many challenges. I don't think anybody expected 2020 to include this pandemic. So much um, racial unrest and then obviously in the middle of an election year. Um, I think it's a really challenging time for everyone because in March, we all sort of knew our path forward was not charted by far, but six months into this, I think it's a really tough place to be, personally and professionally. I use the word illuminated to, t- to say you know, how I feel today because I do think that 2020 has been an amazing time of reflection and an opportunity for you to appreciate, be grateful and thankful for every little gift that you have. And um, the reflection, I think, has led people to think about so many different things. For me specifically, with the Dodgers Foundation in our world, there's so much sadness in terms of, you know, the people that we're serving. But the reality is we've received awards this year and, you know, accolades in, in a manner that's helping to motivate us to move forward. Um, it's interesting how I just feel like there is a, um, a little light that's still shining in so many different corners, even with so much darkness.
0: Right. No, absolutely.
3: It's been a very interesting journey because when all of this started, just being a sports fan in general, and I'm in St. Louis, so I'm I'm in a town where we're coming off a Stanley Cup championship. And, you know, we're coming into March thinking – Blues and Cardinals and March Madness and NBA Finals, and <laughs> playoffs and all these things you're anticipating. And, and they literally all stopped at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so we went from focusing, it was like triage. We focused first on, let's get the most vulnerable among us taken care of. And we were able to, you know, activate some things right away to do so. But in doing that, you know, we're, we're thinking long term that we would definitely be in a different place six months later. And so we went from that to, as Nicole um, articulated, the social unrest. And now with school starting back and, and we're in a whole new cycle of, of need, with, especially with young people. And so um, the reason, you know, I said hopeful and, and thanks, Nicole, for kind of laying the table for me setting the table for me (laughs) is that in the time since all of this started I've seen really the some of the uh, the 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 most spectacular displays of of generosity and kindness from folks and working with uh, major league baseball players who have a lot that they are grateful for they articulate it all the time And seeing the guys step up the way they have to say, look, you know, what can I do in every moment during this crisis? That's what leaves me hopeful because there are just angels among us and and they have really stepped up during this time.
2: Thank you both. Yeah. I know we talked a little bit about your backgrounds um, in our introduction, but you all have a very unique journey. So I'm hoping that both of you can tell us a little bit about your experience that led you um, to the sports community-based work that you're doing now? Yeah, I would definitely um, say I've had a, a, a very unique path here. You know,
4: I did not think at like seven years old, I'd be the CEO of the Dodgers Foundation for sure. I probably didn't know what the Dodgers Foundation was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, as Jakara said in, in her introduction of me, you know, I grew up back east, um, actually grew up a Mets fan. So wasn't even a Dodger fan, period. And I went to college at Spelman and majored in economics because I was intent on being an investment banker for the rest of my life. My goal was to go back to New York City, to Wall Street, to do investment banking and investment management with all my other friends and just do that forever and make a lot of money and retire someday. Mm -hmm. And I did internships every single summer um, at different investment banks and had amazing stints, went back to school. And luckily when I was graduating from Spelman, I had several offers to go work for a number of different banks. I chose to go work for J.P. Morgan Chase. And I was there for a little over a year, um, literally because I got to the point where I was literally having meltdowns in the morning like a two year old because I did not want to go to work. Um, <laughs> the reality is I was going to work every day and I was looking at people to my right and my left who were so passionate and so intrigued by the markets and what was happening. And I lost my zeal for it pretty quickly. I realized early on, I I wanted much more creativity and innovation in what I was doing. And I wasn't getting that. I knew that my talents weren't being utilized. Um, It felt very mundane for me. And obviously I think I have a patience challenge. And so I also felt very like there wasn't a whole lot of instant gratification in it. And so while it may be for many others, it just wasn't for me. And so um, I did some serious networking in New York City, best place to do that. And through my roommate, I ended up going for an interview at Essence Magazine. And I was at that time, like, I'm just gonna go on interviews and figure out what's out there. And I sat down and the vice president of marketing at the time, um, at the end of the interview, she said, I'm gonna hire you. And I just looked at her like, is this woman crazy? (laughs) Um, And she was like, your skill set, your background, your education, the assets that you gained just in this last year in investment banking, they're they are all going to be great for us. And so I worked in publishing for about six years with Essence Magazine and Black Enterprise Magazine. And it was exactly what I was looking for. The marketing, sponsorship, advertising part was amazing. The opportunity to work on the Essence Music Festival, the opportunity to work on the Black Enterprise Golf and Ski Challenge, like it took me places and it led me to... Meeting some amazing Black business professionals who I don't think I would have come in contact with had I still been doing my previous job. It felt like my transition from going to a private white boarding high school in New Milford, Connecticut, where I was the only Black female for four years of my high school experience, to Spelman, and so J.P. Morgan Chase was yet my my second switch from an all-white environment to this Black environment, um, and a very flourishing one that I think further built up my confidence and my business and professional confidence. I got to move to LA while working for Black Enterprise Magazine. We had an office in Chicago and in, and in LA. My husband and I moved here engaged and said, oh, we'll just try that for two or three years. Hollywood, the beaches, it looks cute on TV. Chicago was too cold. <laughs> and so um, 20 years later, obviously, we did not leave after two or three years. We you know, had kids and built a house and all that good stuff. But while I was working for Black Enterprise, I was at an event. We had launched something called the Black Enterprise Woman, a challenge um, event. And in um, Arizona, we were in Arizona the very first year. And the president and CEO of the Jackie Robinson Foundation was my guest. And she literally said to me, we are opening up an office in L.A. We'd love for you to come and help us lead it. And I remember talking to her for a good three to six months because I was like, "Nonprofit? that's not my thing. I haven't done anything in philanthropy. I'm happy to continue to volunteer because I was a Jackie Robinson Foundation scholarship recipient in college. Oh, awesome. No I ended up literally taking the job probably six months into our conversation. Um, and I spent a little over five years with the Jackie Robinson Foundation. I tell people that's where I gained my doctoral degree in nonprofit management. <laughs> I did not this. I did not anything, but on the job via the Robinson family and the great staff that was there. And because I was a product of the program, essentially selling myself and the benefit that it did, it gave me to so many others. It came easy. But that's where I met uh, folks like Keith. When Keith was with the Cardinals, I literally was responsible for every team west of St. Louis. And so I worked with the Major League Baseball teams on whether it be Jackie Robinson Day or just our partnership in general, their support of the Jackie Robinson Foundation and our scholars. And so I really enjoyed that, the fundraising aspect, the program aspect, recruiting scholars, everything. After about five years, I got an itch and a recruiter called me and I went to do public school reform at an organization called LA's Promise on the ground here in LA, which was nice because I finally was not traveling every other day to another city um, after living, having lived in LA for quite a few years at that point and after having my kids. And it was interesting because public school reform is very challenging. I came to find that it was a number of adults arguing about what was best for kids in South Los Angeles schools. And sometimes those what was best for kids never got to kids because we were amongst ourselves just causing so much conversation and conflict. And it took so much time. And again, I was looking for more of an instant gratification reform situation. And so I did that for two years. I learned a lot. And um, College Summit asked me to be the executive director of San Francisco and L.A. And so I went there and took on that role. And I was only there for about seven months before the Dodgers um, new ownership had come on board. And I was going to Dodger Stadium for meetings and helping them sort of launch, uh, relaunch an event that I created while I was at the Jackie Robinson Foundation to launch the Dodgers Foundation. And one day someone said to me, why haven't you applied to be our executive director? I had no idea the position existed. I had no idea what the Dodgers Foundation did, any of the above. Within about two weeks, I had interviewed with Magic Johnson, Mark Walter, Peter Guber, the entire ownership group, our, you know, the Dodgers senior leadership team and I was the executive director of the Dodgers Foundation. I was promoted to CEO in January of 2019. And essentially, I came here and it was handed a new logo and a new name. Uh, We had a bit of a reputation screw up under our former ownership um, group. And um, I was told to, I was given one staff person and told to essentially rebuild. And that's what I've done over the last seven years.
2: thank you. That is a unique story. And it's amazing how you know you made that had that ability to really make a change in your career yeah.
4: yeah i feel so grateful yeah and that's my story for so many youth right whenever i'm talking to anyone you don't have to you won't you don't know what you want to be when you're eight you just don't know <laughs> you'll learn right. what you don't want to be you'll learn who what what you might want to be and then eventually get to what you. Want to be. Yeah. right <laughs> thank
2: you um keith
3: i knew exactly what i wanted to be at eight but um, it didn't turn out that I became that person. Um, The very first love of my life was my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, and she was an educator. So I was going to be an educator. And I had decided that I would go to school. And first I decided I'd study biology because I love science, but um, then I had a biochem and microbiology in the same semester and 12 hours in lab and I dropped that and changed to psychology <laughs> because
0: <laughs> that <was a> change.
3: <laughs> I didn't love it that much but my plan was to to become an educator and I um, got a degree in psychology and minor education but similarly throughout college interning in summer um, latchkey programs and school-based summer camp programs and residential camp programs decided that I could impact the lives of many more kids outside of the classroom than inside the classroom. And so I went into faith-based nonprofit, initially spent time there for a number of years. And because of my science and education background, ended up working for a nonprofit organization out of DC. They had an office here in St. Louis where we were trying to get kids interested in the sciences because we realized that tech and science, there were a lot of people retiring out of tech and science and and it was a a growing field. And so we're trying to get minority students in the inner city of St. Louis involved in science and technology. And then 9-11 happened because our, our funder was in DC. We lost our funding to the defense efforts. And um, I went back to my roots, started, running youth programs with the, the Y um, as youth sports director and um, had no idea as Nicole mentioned about Cardinals care. All I knew about Cardinals care is that we use one of their ball fields for our youth baseball program. Um, hadn't followed the Cardinals for years. My daughter at the time, I think was four years old, had no interest in baseball, <laughs> so I was sent. From a, a friend of mine in the mayor's office, an email saying, hey, you know, send your resume over to the Cardinals. They're looking for someone. I think you'll be a good fit. And at the time, the foundation was very young. I think it was only six years old at the time, had built a handful of ball fields, but really wanted to expand and, and grow programming across the region. And so it was the weirdest thing, um, because at the wide base, basketball was our busiest season. And so I was in the middle of basketball season. I sent the email over to the Cardinals and didn't hear from them for four or five months. I realized in hindsight, the reason why was because the Cardinals had their fan fest in the winter and then spring training. And so my resume was just sitting until all of that ended. I remember distinctly the Monday prior to opening day in 2003, I got a call from the Cardinals to come in on Tuesday. I went in on Tuesday, and there were like seven or eight people interviewing me. <laughs> oh. But the weird thing about it was I knew half of them because they were community leaders because this is a, a new thing for the Cardinals as well. I'm, I'm, to this date, the only one who's ever had my position at the Cardinals. <laughs> so That's awesome um, to say. And and so I went in on a Tuesday, left Wednesday morning. Um, the then vice president of Cardinals Care called me back, had coffee with him on Thursday across the street from the ballpark. And he offered me the position and I stayed for 17 years. So I did not plan to get into sports philanthropy. I, I plan to do direct service with young people and then begin to develop programs and do community development. But the Cardinals offered a unique opportunity for um, me to do some advocacy work and and reach out to even more kids than I had previously working in school settings and in community settings. And so it was a really great transition. And then after 17 years with the Cardinals, um, just very oddly, And unexpectedly, I had talked to Adam Wainwright and offered to help to do some board development for his foundation, not knowing that they were in a uh, period of transition as well. And he called me a couple weeks before Christmas and (laughs) asked me to come talk to him. I went, talked to him about Big League Impact, and he asked me if I would come on board to run the foundation. So, and um, seven weeks into the job all the sports shut down. Go figure, right? <laughs> right. So, but, um, but I, I still, I'm loving what I'm doing. And um, the, the timing couldn't have been more just surreal because I, I really have been able to see some things and do some things with big league impact that quite frankly, um, the limitations I would have had at the Cardinals would have kept us from doing some of the same work.
1: So let's get into athletes and brands. I'm very, very curious to hear what your thoughts are about the brands and the athletes and where they're spending their money because fans are paying more attention now to who's taking action and not just making statements. So I'm just curious of your thoughts of how fans are becoming more aware of where they spend their money and what brands do you think are actually doing it right with using their platform to speak out on some of these issues?
4: Wow, Um, I would say that All brands need to ask themselves, do our actions match our words? I think that in 2020, we are able to call out at this point, anyone that has a mission statement, a vision statement, or anything online or social media that has not backed it up um, in the last two years, 10 years, 15 years, 30 years, whatever it might be. I think when you look at brands like a Nike, you see how bold they're willing to be. All of the brands that are at this point unapologetically um, saying Black Lives Matter and backing it up with actions have become very recognizable to consumers. And I think consumers are changing spending habits based on those things. This is now the time when I think that the the disingenuous statements that just exist on strategic plans and impact reports and, you know, the walls of various stores and the job applications and the bottom footers and headers on their, their letterhead don't really mean anything anymore because I think people have been called out. And I think that a lot of the brands have been called out because also their internal messaging and their internal actions don't match their external. And so we're seeing, we're fi- we're figuring out who has no Black employees. We're figuring out who hasn't been able to retain <laughs> Black employees. We're figuring out who hasn't even tried to recruit Black employees. And then we're looking at the brands who've actually done really good at that. And some of them have been, ha- have been hidden. I've actually been surprised at some of the tech companies and some of the things that they've been doing. I think because everyone's looking for diversity professionals now, we're all seeing who's sort of been behind the curve and who's been ahead of the curve. There is a, just a real call out on authenticity. I think that from a brand perspective, you know who's authentic about it at this point. You know who is not authentic about it at this point, and you know who's trying to get there. And I think that some people are trying to get there. They're late. They're absolutely late. Um, but I think some people are trying to to get there. And I think that you know, just as a consumer who's in a fast paced life like me, in terms of professionally and personally, sometimes I don't get a chance to stop and say, "Am I going to buy from here? Am I going to do this or am I going to do that?" But I know for me in particular, right now, it matters. And I'm willing to take the extra step and read and research and understand that my actions and those of others, it's almost like voting where you buy your stuff from, right? You're actually advocating for a brand. You're supporting a brand. You're keeping them moving forward. So I think all of us that therefore then work somewhere are trying to make sure that we're screaming from the mountaintops within our own organizations that this is business as much as it is about human lives and human lives matter and black lives matter. It's also a, Hey, this has to matter to you from a business perspective. And these consumers now they're just savvy, really savvy. Yeah, absolutely.
3: Uh, Nicole really summed it up, but I'll just hit on a couple of points. I'll reiterate the, um, the part that focuses on where the dollars are going and you see organizations that have even thrived during the pandemic, a, a perfect example would be Netflix and, and immediately spend literally nine figures back into the community. And, and so so that's one of the ways, and, and I agree 100%, you see who was kind of walking the talk prior to this kind of social justice moment by those who were first vocal and visible because they already had leadership. Diverse leadership, and they could jump out ahead of some of the others. And then finally, I think coming out of this is going to be extremely important because people will be much more conscientious for folks to continue to to walk the talk. Because wherever you sit on the side of just the the push for people to make systemic change, just based on what's happening in social, on social media and what's trending that's not going away
1: absolutely and even the athletes they've changed you know who they partner with and which brands they want to speak out for you know no matter what partnership deals in place or how they feel some players that are a little more reserved are actually more um, involved in speaking out and using their platforms depending on the brand and who they're partner with and how they've reacted to these situations. So Absolutely. have you seen a large shift in who the athletes are choosing to partner with just based on the ones that are, you know, stepping out in front and using their platforms to amplify these voices?
4: I, I would say, and Keith's probably so much closer to this on athlete in athlete world right now, but I mean, I would say yes, I feel like at the end of the day, Across the sports world, athletes are saying, I want to be authentic. They are anti the shut up and dribble. Mm -hmm. They are pretty much saying, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to use my voice. I'm going to activate. I'm going to show you who I'm supporting as an example of that. And brands lose out, uh, you know, if that's the case, right? For someone as bold as some of these athletes and their platforms to support and advocate for certain brands, if you're not in that bubble right now, you're losing out. So you need to kind of catch up. But I think that also in the industry for me, an article actually came out this morning in the Players' Tribune, baseball players are still reserved. And I think because of the small population of Black players, they're not all there quite yet with, I'm just gonna scream loudly from the mountains that Black Lives Matter. And I think that people are wrestling with how much this may or may not hurt their career They're wrestling with how their teams are going to support them, how the overall league is going to support them. Because historically, that just hasn't been the case. And MLB has said it and our clubs have said it. We have a far way to go in baseball. The numbers are not there. So the representation of that guy that looks like you in the clubhouse is few and far in between. And so I think it's harder. Obviously, we see with the NBA and what they're doing with the playoffs, phenomenal, but the numbers, right? So I think we're going to see that because the player there are more players who have either experienced some of these tragedies themselves and have felt this hurt and this pain and injury their entire lives, but yet they have so many other guys around them who have as well. So I think we're gonna see them, you know, similarly, right? Names on the back of jerseys, phrases that, you know, need to be displayed all the time. To your point, Keith, like social media is not going away. So everybody's just gonna throw it in our face and Everybody needs to kind of digest it and process, but act because I don't think
3: it's going away. And I agree. And, and, you know, one of the things we're discovering um, more so than ever, we knew it anecdotally, and and there's some research out there as well, but how the fan base reflects the, the personnel on the field or the court. And we were seeing in baseball that... The fan base, there's a much stronger pushback by the fans against players speaking out on social justice issues. And we, we're scrubbing social media on a daily basis because of some of the comments that are being made by the fans. But I will say that, again, going back to the the hopefulness of all of this, there is a lot less, I think, of the, the reluctance from players than I think there would have been just a couple of years ago to back down from some of the the comments that are being made by the fans on social media. I think what this moment has provided for players who were maybe on the fence or a little reluctant to speak out is a little bit of cover because they see that this is something that, one, is not going away and that the majority – is now minorities, <laughs> you know, w- in terms of speaking out on some of these issues, and um, especially within the sports world, um, the WNBA led the charge, and then NBA players. And I agree with Nicole that um, the NFL will follow, um, and and I think some of these guys who are in baseball are getting that that wake up call now that they can't be left on the sideline yeah. or in the dugout, I should say. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I think a big part of the athlete conversation, too, is thinking thinking about the allies. I do um, think that there is a huge place for allies in this moment. So athletes who don't identify as Black, of course, but who also, I think, are realizing that in supporting your Black teammates, you're going to help push the agenda forward. I don't think that progress can happen if we're just the ones who consistently saying Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, and I think that's been Uh, illuminating moment for me in 2020 to have so many non-black people say, it's time for us to stand up or nothing changes. And I think it is powerful for a white athlete, a white male athlete to say, this is time for change. I think that's very important. I've had the pleasure, honestly, of working with a lot of the guys on my team to educate them, but also to give them a platform and help them to use their
1: platforms
4: to amplify the voices of their black teammate and also just the black organizations who are on the ground, you know, fighting for social justice.
1: Yeah. And I think that's very important, especially coming from MLB knowing that we're always waiting for, you know, the league to structure what everyone will do or the movement. So encouraging the teams individually and having them tell their players, whatever you decide, like, this is your platform, use your voice. We want to encourage you to speak out and do what, what you feel from your heart versus, a team statement and then everyone passes it along like no yeah no.
4: yeah absolutely
2: yeah. yeah we talked a lot about um the players really using their platform um to really voice their messages lately we've seen a lot of these players also partnering with their foundations with other athletes or celebrities or brands so curious um keith tell us a little bit about the work that adam rainwright has done has he done any collaboration work um with other players or brands
3: So as I mentioned, when the pandemic first started, literally the weekend after spring training stopped, Adam Wainwright Foundation, Big League Impact, partnered with the Garth Brooks Foundation. We got players from all of the teams involved to raise money specifically to feed children at the beginning of the the pandemic. And then since then, we have worked to bring some of those same players in to the virtual space. So we, we've we had to move some of our fundraising into the virtual space. And that's included players in a number of different markets, also hosting fantasy football leagues. But but we've had the, the luxury of having those same players through those relationships and collaborations. We had an excellent campaign where we gave away a G through the Omaze platform and, and raised nearly a half a million dollars doing so, and that was largely due to the fact that these players have huge followings. They were active on social media, getting the word out, and that's those. That's one of those fundraisers that that happens very organically. And so we've been fortunate both in the sports industry across the league, and um, it doesn't hurt having you know Uncle Charlie as your president because he's well respected throughout the league but also in the music industry as well Adam is a very huge country music fan and it's no secret he has a really good relationship with Garth Brooks so beyond working with Garth Brooks' foundation just that name and the Rolodex (laughs) that that comes along with that when you're trying to push something on we're careful to leverage the relationships at the right time but have been very fortunate I can honestly say that we have not had one person say no to us this year when we reached out to, to them to ask them for support on any of our campaigns.
0: No, that's awesome.
2: Excellent. And I was actually doing a little digging um, on MLB the other day and noticed that Adam was also nominated for the Robert Clemente Award. So clearly his work is is noticed in the industry. So congratulations to him and you know your team, Keith.
3: Well, thank you. And, and my team was really excited because when we go down the list and look at the nominees from many of the teams, a lot of the work that they were doing was connected to Big League Impact. So, <laughs> so
0: really you both kind of alluded to this, but more specifically, Nicole, what adjustments have you made in the last few months within your current organization to address the needs of the community? Wow,
4: Significant adjustments. We've made some very significant adjustments the last six months. We had to pivot in a big way. The reality is, when I think about it, we came home on March 12th and essentially never looked back in terms of the way we thought we were going to be playing out 2020. We were about to launch our um, seventh season of our Dodgers RBI youth development program that runs from late March until the end of August And so, essentially, we had to suspend programming for 11,000 young boys and girls at 85 different locations. We also were days away from opening day, so about two weeks, where, obviously, we raise a lot of money via in-stadium fundraising. And just one example is we do about $4 million of our budget annually via the 50-50 raffle that happens in stadium across the 81 home games. We host a significant Blue Diamond Gala every year that does three million plus. And so we knew by the end of March that we were down in revenue in terms of the budget that we had projected for 2020, probably by about 80% because of the way in which we had envisioned raising this money and that we obviously had to suspend youth programming. And we questioned what that meant for the hundred grant making organization, grantee organizations that we give grants to annually. We immediately launched a COVID-19 relief fund. We knew that it was very important for us to give fans, players, and others a central place to partner with us to give funds to organizations on the ground like the LA Food Bank, My Friend's Place, which is a homeless organization, and many others, obviously, who were helping the neediest of the neediest. And I say that because, you know, so many of the families and the communities that we were serving prior to the pandemic, they were already in crisis. And we were already on the ground in Los Angeles with these communities. And so for this to happen and crisis to be exasperated in this way, we Mm -hmm. felt the need to act pretty quickly. And so we launched the fund, but then we decided, you know, how are we gonna continue to serve the families that we had been working with? And so we actually partnered with corporate sponsors of the team, other local nonprofit organizations, individuals who wanted to be a part of it. And we launched the drive-through series where we went into various communities as safe as we could with the right PPE and the right social distancing. And essentially we started to give away food, basic necessities like diapers and wipes, and even the baseball and softball equipment and fitness equipment we thought that families really did need at home during this time. And we were putting these things in families' trunks. You pop your trunk, we we put items in your trunk. You honked your horn, we waved, it was a a sense of like, just mental sanity, because obviously everyone's kind of been going a little crazy. So helpful for people to get a little dose of the Dodgers. We started to do these before we even knew there was a baseball season coming back, right, even though it's a baseball Mm -hmm. season with no fans. And so it gave people a consistent connection to the brand. And it showed them that even in a time with no baseball games, we were still going to show up for the community, for those families who are experiencing the most pressing problems, for those neighborhoods that often are in the shadows and get overlooked and because of their zip codes, don't technically matter to a whole lot of people. And we're continuing to do that. We've given out about 400,000 meals um, since March. We've done a million dollars in in-kind donations. We're about to launch another drive through series of five additional neighborhoods that we honestly didn't even hit the first time we did this to ensure that more families are able to experience um, these giveaways. Um, a lot of people are talking about recovery, but the reality is here in LA, I like to say we're still in relief mode given where we were before, I'm sorry, the crisis has been exasperated and there's no such thing as recovery in six months. So We're still gonna be giving out food and basic necessities that a lot of these families need. I mean, I saw the other day in California alone, 5 million people lost their job in COVID. There's no way people who were already suffering are gonna be okay in the next six months. And then obviously, as we said before, with the election and everything else that we're worried about, oh my goodness. We have an intense virtual programming happening. So college and career accelerators, youth fitness clinics, Dodger drills, a little bit of everything. We launched the courageous conversations piece to ensure that we could give families everything from how to talk to your child about racism to how to deal with your child's mental stability during this very, you know, uncertain time. A lot of kids aren't talking, they're not speaking up, but they're going through a lot. And so we're continuing that series through December. So we've been doing a lot, but I tell you, this is not the way in which we had planned. I'm very much a planner. So I've, I've completely been thrown off my, my whole game this year. But I tell my team as a leader, right? This was a very challenging year, but what a test. Like if you can overcome this and yeah, I'm, I'm a huge planner, but if you can overcome this and adjust, you'll be okay. So I've, I've learned a lot as a leader. I've learned a lot about my team and we just keep moving forward. We really keep moving forward.
0: I mean, and honestly, you guys, you know, kind of pivoted very quickly. And even throughout the, the industry, we know that you guys are doing great things. So, uh, I mean, I, even though you're a planner, you, you've been doing really well. So I really appreciate you being able to continue those programs and to kind of shift them. Thank you. Keith, I know you kind of alluded to some of the adjustments you've made. Was there anything you wanted to add?
3: Early on in the pandemic, not knowing how long things would last and with all the uncertainty, we did take advantage of the time to just shore up some systems so that in our work, as we work with players across the league from and, and we work with even nonprofits in different markets, we're able to bring them into the fold and in, into the virtual fundraising Space that we created for them, and so um, we made some some major changes to our systems to adjust to the virtual space. We were very fortunate, as I mentioned to have those partners raise funds early on to address the the immediate needs. but then we also had to to nicole 's point organizations that have been relying on um, the work of Big League Impact and and our partner players for years. So we were still able to, as a result of those partnerships and that those early fundraising efforts, still fund the school that we've been supporting in in Haiti and Ferrier Village and some of the um, water accessibility programs in Haiti and parts of the Dominican, which is very important to us because we have players who are from the Dominican who are supportive of big league impact and we wanted to make sure that to the best of our ability we continue to support those communities as well as um, those domestically um, during the pandemic because this is a global pandemic.
1: Nicole you've been very busy over these last couple months and you shared you know just since March what you've done externally but we all know for the organizations that it's just as important to focus on internal efforts so what is your organization working on or what do you think other internal or other organizations could focus on internally? Whether that's DNI councils, trainings, ongoing education sessions, uh, what do you think other organizations should focus on internally?
4: Yeah, I think that, um, as I was saying before when we were talking about companies, I think it's time for everyone to sort of live beyond the talking points, live beyond the statements. I think that short-term and long-term strategy is the way to look at this. There are some very immediate things that organizations internally need to do. And I think it's ensuring, obviously, that employees are okay and that Black employees are okay and ensuring that if you don't know how to do that, that you seek an outside expert to help you do that. I think that's really important. I think it's okay to just be honest and say, we have no idea or an expert can actually come in and we won't be you know, spinning our wheels or creating things that are just not aligned with what's actually needed from a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective at this point. I think it's very important for organizations to understand the importance of the actual role right now and that the diversity professional be a senior individual who has the power to create change within the organization. I think it's really important. I've kind of like put it in three buckets for my organization, right? I think it's important to acknowledge, I think it's important to address, and I think it's important to act. After the murder of George Floyd, just as the only senior black woman within the Dodger organization, black person in the Dodger organization, it was important for me to share my personal black experience as the mother of two black sons and a black husband and a black father and brothers, you guys know the deal. And it was important for me to share that experience so people understood this didn't happen like last week. This is like 400 years long before my time. We're not going to fix it overnight. But it is very important right now for us to acknowledge what side of this we sit on. Have we done anything? Are we planning to do anything? Have we been resting our laurels on one thing? Like what what is it that you're acknowledging, right? And that might be I'm a racist, I'm an anti-racist. I don't know what I am. I want to be an ally, but I don't know how to be an ally. And then I think it was—it's really important to address it, like to have conversations, to have really uncomfortable conversations, and know that uncomfortable conversations are the right conversations. If you're having a conversation internally within any company and it feels just great and you're flourishing and it's all good, it's probably not. Though you're, people are probably not being honest. Transparency is probably not happening. Right. And then I think acting. What are you gonna do? So whether that's opening up the the purse and writing, you know, big checks to support social justice organizations, um, and I don't even mean big social justice organizations, you know, we're supporting 13 organizations on the ground here in LA that, again, have been in the shadows that people don't know about who are encouraging youth to advocate for themselves and who are essentially youth development programs that are social justice or, you know, organizations that are doing that. And I think that amplifying the voices, companies amplifying the voices, even in our industry of the social justice organizations on the ground who are doing the work as well as writing the check is huge. Our platform is so big that an opportunity for people to see what they're doing and maybe also support, but maybe also just use the organization as a source of their education is really important. We just really have to see this though as systemic racism. So it's not going to go away tomorrow and organizations need a diversity, equity and inclusion strategic plan. The same way you need a plan for this thing or this thing, what is it that you're going to do for the long haul to ensure that these things don't, that you're not reacting when unfortunately the next episode of police brutality happens or a woman's issue happens or a LGBTQ um, issue happens, that it's really important for us at this time to put systems and process in place internally to ensure that our people, our employees, feel safe, protected, and cared for. And like this is an environment in which I wanna grow, I wanna be productive, and I wanna flourish. Hence you're gonna attract more, specifically in this case, black employees. And that also that, you know, we are at a place where we're just not lying to ourselves. Companies need to just be honest in terms of where you sit. I don't think the gray area is it's not valid anymore, right? Like I don't I don't know how you can how you can be in the gray, especially in this
1: industry. Absolutely. I think the organizations and the athletes have to, again, it's not in the gray. It's black and white here. It's right or wrong. It's not Mm -hmm. politics. And we hear so many times where organizations are saying like, well, we've never been political or stepped into that. Well, how about human rights? How about right and wrong? Mm -hmm. So we've seen, yes, we've seen a lot of of players and professional organizations take bold stands. I follow Tampa Bay Rays faithfully and, you know, all the Seattle teams and thankfully WNBA has always done a great job, whether it's gender equality, social justice and anything else and LeBron and getting behind voting and what he's done in a big way. So what teams and what players have stood out to you?
3: I would go beyond teams and players. I would say leagues. I mean, there have been teams and there have been individuals. But to your point, the WNBA, the NBA have definitely stood out among the leagues I mean, you have individuals on teams. I mean, here in St. Louis, we've followed Jack Flaherty. And and when no one else from the Cardinals um, would stand up and take a stand, Jack Flaherty and Dexter Fowler said, we're going to join the protests around the league. And so there have been individuals who have stood out, and there are others who have. But I think women, they lead. We know. (laughs) Um, But I think the leagues have – really especially in basketball have really just taken the 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 lead on on really speaking out and stepping out because you know and nicole articulated it beautifully you know we can't continue to do transactional things and try to change through small transactional movement it has to be transformative it has to be something that's sustainable over a longer period of time and i think that by the protests the league-wide protest and leagues being able to collectively have their voices be heard. I think that's what we're going to get out of this moment that we haven't in the past. It's going to be different from when Colin Kaepernick was able to be blackballed from the moment we're in now, where that's not going to happen with an individual because the players are collectively using their voices.
4: I would agree that um, the NBA and the WNBA are certainly at the forefront right now. And the fact that they're making the message so consistent is so important. And I think that um, even our MLB players, black or white are using that as an example and also modeling that behavior. Um, And one example is, you know, we had our players on opening day this year, they wore black lives matter um, t-shirts during batting practice before the game. And there was a pre-ceremony and, um, you know, various things happened that were all in in support of Black Lives Matter, which was, you know, major for Major League Baseball. To see so many players consistently put that shirt on for batting practice when they can put on any shirt they want, because they're seeing what the NBA players are doing, because everybody's watching the playoffs, and they're seeing what the WNBA is doing. I think it's setting such a a fabulous example for folks that it wasn't, it's not one day, we need to stop celebrating these one days we do this Jackie Robinson day thing, we do this, this thing, and then we're like, okay, black people, you had enough? No, we haven't. (laughs) This is an ongoing challenge, and we need to support it with ongoing messaging and ongoing process and programs and things of that nature.
3: Right.
2: And then
4: when I think about the Players Alliance, so Curtis Granderson, a former black MLB player, he um, launched the Players Alliance. If you guys aren't following them, it's a great way to see a group of black MLB players really focused on the issues where many of these guys haven't heard from in terms of their standing up for the idea that black lives matter and i think that they have spoken in their smaller pockets and smaller corners but it's nice to see them as a coalition standing for this because they know they're few and far in between and some of them might be the only guy on their entire roster or when they play because some of them are alumni might have been the only guy on the roster but I do like that they've sort of joined forces to say in addition to what's happening at various clubs in addition to what's happening on the league level we together know that we have a collective voice and frankly they have a responsibility to the younger black boys who want to play baseball who are you know, sometimes a little anxious of, well, I'm not going to do it because there's nobody that looks like me. So I'm going to go play basketball or play football. But I think they're giving them some sort of confidence, if that makes sense in this moment in time, that I think is really absolutely necessary. So I'd love to see the Players Alliance continue to flourish in MLB for additional, you know, any Black player that's playing to be a part of it and for the message to continue to soar. Because I think that would be very helpful as the league continues efforts to bring more Black players into the game.
2: We talked a lot about your organizations, about um, athletes, as well as the leagues, in terms of what you all have been doing this year. But curious of what your plans are for the twenty-one, to the twenty twenty-one season. What's next year look like for you? What are you planning for? Or are you just trying to get through now? <laughs>
4: <laughs> you want that one? Uh, My answer is I don't know. No, it's so hard this year to even just say what we're planning for fourth quarter, and we're in fourth quarter. Like I know that sounds absolutely insane. I mean, I wish for 2021 to go back to some sense of normalcy, but the reality is we're planning like scenario A, B, and C at this point, right? So for our youth programs, it's like, okay, maybe we're gonna be completely back up and operational in person. Maybe we're gonna have a hybrid program and it's gonna be online and uh, virtual, and it's gonna be a little bit in person and we're gonna roll out that way. I don't know what the flu season and the holidays are going to bring with respect to this pandemic, right? So you also have to plan for worst case, which is like, that's not going to exist in 2021. So what takes its place? So we're doing a lot of ifs, ands, buts, and maybes right now. And we had to do this a few months ago, right? We had to create scenarios when we weren't sure if the games were going to come back with fans, without fans, half fans. And so we're revisiting all of those scenarios and pulling those all back together where we're just predicting making some projections, I should say, on whether or not we think that stadiums are going to be full. Are people going to come back out to, to baseball games and the droves that they were? Are we going to have the luxury of 56,000 fans in stadium and all the sellouts that we typically have? I just don't know. I don't know if the county public health department's going to even allow that. So there's so many questions that, unfortunately, I've said for 2020 as well, it's been overwhelming on the work side because you almost have to do more work and some of it will never get utilized because you're creating scenarios, you're potentially, you're creating potential programs, you're creating potential pivots. And I feel like we're still in that mode for 2021. We're just gonna have a lot of tricks and whichever one pops out of the hat is whichever <laughs> one the the <laughs> county, whichever one medicine and science says is the one because that's that's truly what we're making guide us.
3: And for us, decreasing our reliance on live in person mm-hmm events as a means to raise funds, because even if things begin to get back to normal, I, I said this at the beginning of the pandemic, and I think it'll still apply. Big League Impact can't be the organization that introduces something into the clubhouse, right? So so we, we're, we're dealing with that lack of reliance on in-person events. I will say that there is the possibility that as things do begin to get back to normal, what we've learned over this time becomes a way for us to diversify. Mm -hmm. And so we're definitely making sure that we are um, learning in this time so that as we get back to normal, there will still be vulnerable people among us who will be reluctant to get out. And there will still be probably um, things in place that limit athletes and and their excess, um, the excess that they give to the public. So we have to be mindful of that, probably through the end of next season, even if there is a vaccine, because politics as they are, people are gonna be reluctant to take it right away. So just learning from this time and and like I said, decreasing that reliance on live in-person events and experiences as a means to raise those funds.
1: Selfishly, the marketing person in me loves that we're pushing things out digitally digitally now instead of focusing on in-person because now you have them on email and it's like, okay, well, how about push notifications and text messages? So I love that you mentioned, you know, your adjustments and how you're making those changes, but also we don't know what 2021 holds and we can plan for plan A and then switch to plan B as soon as we hear something else from Health officials. So we're learning to adapt and I think that's the easiest of 2020. I personally love working from home. I think we need to be in the office maybe one or two days, but we can scale it back a little bit. So I'm learning as well, and we're just adjusting as we go. But we're praying and hoping everyone will be safe in 2021. We're going to wrap it up quickly with a lightning round. So whatever comes first to mind, we'll ask you guys three quick questions and try to answer in one or two words. So the first one that I have for you is what's your favorite or personal give back cause? Like what's your favorite initiative to give back to
3: or work on? I have to say our our food distribution, just because the kids who come out and just the, they don't know that they're in the situation that they're in. They're just excited. And it it really shows us how meaningful the work is. Sorry, that was too many words, but yeah. College access.
4: All right, next lightning round question is, current TV show
2: that you're watching? Greenleaf. <laughs> <Ooh>, yes <yeah.
4: laughs> I am uh watching it from the very beginning I'm done with C see- yeah I've never seen an episode and I just started last week but I'm gonna be done soon because I'm addicted right it's
2: great <laughs> tonight <laughs> <laughs>
4: oh my gosh I I was missing out I was really missing out
3: <laughs> well NBA playoffs I can't watch anything else right now <laughs> <laughs> agree Lakers.
0: <Go> Lakers. <laughs> And our final question, uh, what is your favorite way to relax?
3: Big coffee chair and a remote control.
0: <laughs> okay, well you are in your
2: perfect yeah. spot.
4: <laughs> Sipping a cocktail by anybody
0: of water, pool or beach. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, thank you both so much. This was amazing. Um, this dialogue was awesome. Very much needed, and we really appreciate you guys and, and the time that you spent with us today. Thank you. This was awesome and amazing, and thank you guys for having
4: me.
3: And I echo that I appreciate and honored by the invitation, and thank you for pairing me with my friend Nicole. I yes, who I'm seen not her seeing her all the time, but yes.
4: I'm hearing all the time. Yes, <laughs> right. yes. you thank are you. doing it over there.
2: Happy for you.
3: Thank you. All
2: right, thank you all.